Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 91. Islamic history, circa 624. A united force. In military history, there is a very common formula that is often used, traditionally used, to express what it takes to create military power. What is it that comprises military power. And the formula is actually extremely simple, overly simple, you would think. But if you look back at any military conflict, it really, really holds up. Shockingly so. Now, just about any famous conflict can be looked at through the lens of this great equation. And it's just a two-input multiplication equation. It's real easy. Military power is equal to force times will. You want to know how an army will do, how a nation will do at war? Force times will. It really is that simple. So force times will. What do these terms mean exactly? We'll start with force. Force is what we usually think of when we traditionally think about battles. Things like, how many soldiers do you have? How well trained are these soldiers? How are they led? What are their weapons? Um, do they have the logistics to do what it is that they are supposed to be doing? And force is the classic element of war games. <laughs> you know, tabletop games, video games. How much force can I apply on the battlefield? And is that force greater than the force that can be used against me? So force, in a modern sense, that's planes and tanks and guns and soldiers and ammunition and all of that. But of course, that's only half of the equation. The other half is will. First of all, how willing are these soldiers to use any of this great stuff you just got them? How motivated are they? Will they run when the battle starts? Um, and what about the people and, and the systems that will be supporting the armed forces, especially through a long conflict? Are they up for this? Will the civilian population be easily demoralized? How much do they even care about this conflict? And will they be willing to make sacrifices? That is will. And if you want an effective military force, you need both. Force times will. And if you don't have both of those things, you're probably in trouble. Let's use my country as a real-life example of this, just to kind of drive home the point. In modern times, why do Americans keep losing wars, especially with an annual military budget nearing a trillion dollars and a long history of winning huge wars? Because the army is fine. <laughs> the, there's nothing wrong with the army. The army is plenty competent. There is plenty of force. But the problem is, is that the will to fight is weak. 
particularly on the civilian front. Take Vietnam, for example. America had all the force in the world, but in the end, the will just wasn't there. That war could have been won, but the public, right or wrong, I'm not really taking a stance on that, the public would not accept the cost of victory, which would be things like even greater conscription and maybe a much larger war if the other communist countries joined in, and maybe even China, you know, maybe nuclear weapons would be involved. So the civilian population said, um, no, we're not doing any of that. If you win this on the cheap or you don't win it at all. And they didn't win it at all because the American military was strong in force, but weak in will, particularly on the civilian front, of course. And then look at the other side of that conflict. It was almost a mirror image. The North Vietnamese were the exact opposite of the American army in this way. They had weak force, but strong will. They really didn't seem to care that 10 Vietnamese were being killed for every American. Now that's will, right or wrong, that is will. And in the end, the North Vietnamese mustered just enough force to combine with that will, um, mostly with a large material from the Soviet Union and whatnot, just enough to actually one-up the Americans. And in the end, to have greater military power. So the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, they never had greater force than the Americans. You know, that would have been impossible. But force times will, that was just a bit larger. So in Vietnam, the American model was strong force and weak will which ultimately was a poor mixture for military success. Now, similarly, the exact opposite of that would have the same problems. If you had, say, all will and no force, that's not really a winning combination. Now, that didn't really exist in the um, Vietnam War. You know, they, they had some force. So just to give an example of what this would look like, um, something that was all will and no force. Think of really any indigenous army in the new world that came into contact with European armies, you know, like 500 years ago. That would be a great example of all will and no force. Geronimo, for example, um, or if you wanted to jump into modern times, the greatest display of will in a war I can think of would be Japan in World War II. They fought almost to the end, and without the intervention of a single man, they very well might have continued to fight until every one of them was dead. Now that is will in its most extreme sense, and it was central to their war strategy to bleed American will. You know, but in the end, American industry fueled its overwhelming force and because of Pearl Harbor, the Americans had just enough will to use it. Or as Admiral Yamamoto called it, the Americans would be filled with a terrible resolve. So there's the classic formula. Force times will. 
And it's a formula I find particularly helpful when watching the formation of the Muslim military, you know, pretty much from scratch. Because from our place in history, we know that the Muslims would go on to be a great military power. But how did they get to that point? Well, force times will, of course. The problem was, in the early days, in the lead-up to the first actual battle in Muslim history, the Muslims were short on both. And if they wanted to be any kind of a military power, both of those things needed to be shored up. The first problem was force. Really, this would always be a problem in the early days. But when the whole community, meaning the entire community of Muslims, when not all of them were fighting, this was really, really a problem. When we last spoke about the Muslims, the only people participating in the raids on the Quraysh were the faction of the immigrants. They were the refugees from Mecca. And in many ways, at least partially, the motive was financial restitution from the people they felt had robbed and persecuted them. But this was their fight. The Muslims had permission to fight, but very few were actually all that into it, at least in the early days. So the force was weak, and so was the will. And a major reason the force was weak is because the will was also weak, which is usually the case in communities that are not united. And keep in mind, the formula is force times will, not force plus will. Each side reinforces the other. You know, extra force or extra will isn't just something added on to the total. It's a force multiplier. And in this case, because there is a reserve of men not fighting, increasing the will, well, that will also increase the force because it will increase the number of people who are willing to fight for you. And it's as true then as it is now. You absolutely need a propaganda operation that will infuse men with the will to fight voluntarily. Voluntarily being the key. Because a volunteer gives you force and will. A conscript just gives you force, for the most part. So the Muslims needed willing warriors. Now, how do you increase the will of a Muslim army? Well, you look to God, because God is the loudspeaker of the Muslim community. God is the person on the recruiting poster. Now, I'm not going to compare the Quran to modern military propaganda exactly. I'm not doing that directly, but it does know how to hit idealistic young men in the sweet spot. This really is an age-old formula. Volunteer militaries would not exist without it. What you do is, on the one hand, you question the worth of men who will not fight. 
using whatever values that particular society holds at the time. So when molding a young recruit, that's the hammer. But you still need an anvil to put under that piece of steel you are molding. And that anvil is a promise of great rewards. Now, those rewards, it could be money. It could be respect. It could be whatever someone of a particular society would really, really want. A spoiler alert, Muslim men tended to want things like pleasing God and pleasing the prophet and especially going to heaven. So this classic operation, what did this look like in the Islamic context? First, the hammer. Shortly after the raid on Nakhla, when God says it's okay to fight in a holy month, another revelation comes. And what does that revelation say? Those who are not joining the emigrants on these raids are cowards and weak in faith. This is from the Quran. Surah 47, verses 20 to 21. And the believers say, if only a surah was revealed, allowing self-defense, and when a precise surah is revealed, in which fighting is explicitly mentioned, you see those with sickness in their hearts staring at you like someone in the throes of death. It would have been better for them to obey and speak rightly. Then, when fighting was ordained, it surely would have been better for them if they were true to Allah. If they were true to Allah. Meaning, those not wanting to fight, they're not being true to Allah. Ouch! I mean, ouch! If you're a Muslim and you're hearing that, Wow, that's a gut punch from the creator. Now, in this case, the audience was the Ansar, or the helpers, those Muslims who had always resided in Medina, and therefore didn't really have any kind of a quarrel with the Quraysh. And they had little to gain by fighting them. And still, the gut punches keep coming in this surah which segues immediately into a diatribe against hypocrites, which may or may not have been aimed at the Ansar or the helpers. But if you are a Muslim, hypocrite is a pretty massive slur. This is uh, that same surah, verses 22 to 38. Now, if you hypocrites turn away, Perhaps you would then spread corruption throughout the land and sever your ties of kinship. These are the ones who Allah has condemned, deafening them and blinding their eyes. Do they not then reflect on the Quran, or are there locks upon their hearts? Indeed, those who relapse into disbelief after true guidance has become clear to them, it is Satan that has tempted them, luring them with false hopes. That is because they said privately to those who also detest what Allah has revealed, we will obey you in some matters, but Allah fully knows what they are hiding. And how horrible will it be when the angels take their souls, beating their faces and backs, 
This is because they follow whatever displeases Allah and hate whatever pleases him. So he has rendered their deeds void. Or do those with sickness in their hearts think that Allah will not be able to expose their malice? Had he willed, we could have truly shown them to you, O Prophet, and you would have certainly recognized them by their appearance. But you will surely recognize them by their tone of speech, and Allah fully knows your doings, O people. We will certainly test you believers until we prove those of you who truly struggle in Allah's cause and remain steadfast and reveal how you conduct yourselves. Indeed, those who disbelieve hinder others from the way of Allah and defy the messenger after true guidance has become clear to them. They will not harm Allah in the least, but he will render their deeds void. O believers, obey Allah and obey the messenger, and do not let your deeds be in vain. Surely those who disbelieve hinder others from the way of Allah, and then die as disbelievers. Allah will never forgive them. So do not falter or cry for peace, for you will have the upper hand and Allah is with you and he will never let your deeds go to waste. This worldly life is no more than play and amusement. But if you are faithful and mindful of Allah, he will grant you your full reward and will not ask you to donate all your wealth. If he were to do so and pressure you, you would withhold and he would bring out your resentment. Here you are being invited to donate a little in the cause of Allah. And still some of you withhold, and whoever does so, it is only to their own loss. For Allah is the self-sufficient, whereas you stand in need of him. And if you still turn away, he will replace you with another people, and they will not be like you. Now, those are pretty harsh words, right? And you just see kind of the hinting here and there that these hypocrites may be people who don't want to fight. So if you're a young man who is not joining in the fight, you have to wonder, is God talking about me? Am I giving my all to God? Am I holding back? Am I a hypocrite? Will I be beaten by angels? So, like I said, that's the hammer, the action. And then comes the anvil, the reinforcing of the faith that the hammer relies upon, and the promise of great rewards and favor from God. For example, here's Surah 2, verses 244 to 245. Fight in the cause of Allah, and know that Allah is all-hearing, all-knowing. Who will lend to Allah a good loan which Allah will multiply many times over? It is Allah alone who decreases and increases wealth, and to him you will all be returned. Now it then goes on to give Saul as an example, and then the story of David and Goliath driving the point home that this is not 
just about doing good works. This means literally fighting in the cause of Allah, as Saul did and as David did. So these young men are being told to fight. Lend God your sword, your fighting spirit, even your life. God will take that and multiply it several times over, giving you the proceeds. This is the beginning of the Muslim warrior spirit. There was little of this back in Mecca, but after just two years in Medina, the order to fight is all over the place. The obligation to fight and the promise of great rewards for fighting in the cause of Allah. Here's another one from that time. This is Surah 4, verses 95 to 96. Those who stay at home, except those with valid excuses, are not equal to those who strive in the cause of Allah with their wealth and their lives. Allah has elevated in rank those who strive with their wealth and their lives above those who stay behind with valid excuses. Allah has promised each a fine reward. But for those who strive, they will receive a far better reward than others. Far superior ranks, forgiveness and mercy from Him, meaning Allah. And Allah is all forgiving, most merciful. So there you have the anvil of faith, giving the reward for fighting, and then the hammering of the ordinary Muslim with shame for not fighting. The shaping of a new warrior ethos among the Muslims. You're seeing this happen. And gradually, this increased the Muslim will to fight, which increased the force of the army. And by 624, when the Battle of Badr would be fought, the line between the emigrants and the helpers just became much, much more blurry. Because now everyone, among the Muslims at least, everyone wanted to fight the Quraysh, the enemies of Islam, the enemies of the Prophet. The force and the will had increased massively over a very short period of time. And as I just showed you, this was by design. It wasn't an accident. It didn't just happen. So the Muslims now had the will to fight, and they would march to the Battle of Badr with a little over 300 warriors. 300. That really doesn't sound like very many, and really it wasn't. But this would force the Meccans to scramble their own force for the battle, and their number would be about a thousand. However, you know, this 300 for the Muslims, compared to just a year before, this was huge. This wasn't a dozen emigrants harassing a caravan. This was starting to become a legit army. And the most important part was that the Muslims were now a cohesive 
united force. The early raiders were all from the emigrant faction, and it was always uh, an almost exclusive endeavor of the Meccan emigrants doing all this fighting. But this new army, only about a quarter of it were the emigrants. The other three quarters were native Medinans, those who had always lived in Yathrib and comprised a they were made up of both the Aus and the Khazraj tribes, you know, former enemies, now united in Islam. So the factions were melting into a single force, united in faith, and for the time being, united against one enemy and one focus. That would be fighting Mecca. Now, the Meccan emigrants had always been singularly focused on Mecca, and now their helpers in Medina were doing the same thing. And to top it off, this is also the time period when the Muslims changed their direction of prayer, or Qibla. They turned around, I mean, pretty much 180, exact opposite direction. Instead of facing Jerusalem, they would now face south toward Mecca. Now, like with the calls to fight, this particular order also came directly from God. See Surah 2, verse 144 of the Quran. So not only were the Muslims uniting, they were also splitting from the Jews of Yathrib by praying in the opposite direction. So now you had Meccan Muslims and Muslims with no connection to Mecca at all. They were all now literally all facing in the same direction toward the holy city, now the holiest city, really, of Mecca. So how did all of this happen? All miraculous explanations aside, at a very practical level, it was war that made all of this happen. Because nothing unites a people like a good war, a good struggle, particularly those who had never been together in the first place before the war. For example, without war, there would not be a country known as Germany. There would be no united sense of Germanness. That wasn't a natural thing that had to be created, forging a single German nation rather than a loose collection of Prussians and Bavarians and Rhinelanders and Alsatians, and, you know, people who just happened to speak German but otherwise didn't have very much in common. War was the key to uniting a people who otherwise were quite suspicious of each other. And the founder of the unified German state, he knew this. Otto von Bismarck famously said, uh, to paraphrase slightly, not through speeches and majority decisions will the great questions of the day be decided, but by blood and iron. This was the old Prussian style. Prussia being famously described as an army with a state rather than a state with an army. 
In other words, a very militarized society. And this was the Prussian sensibility that would so unnerve the world for the next 75 years. But Otto von Bismarck was right. He was right. War solidified that previously unnatural bond between so-called Germans. It was the great struggles, be it victory in the Franco-Prussian War or the later disasters of World Wars I and II. And in our case, in the history we are talking about, the same thing would be true for the Muslims. This early community was not going to be glued together simply by faith, but it would eventually, even after the death of Muhammad, it would eventually be an empire forged in blood and iron. And the fate of the Arabian Peninsula would not be forged by poetry and compromise, but by blood and iron. The Quran may have inspired the many soldiers that would eventually become the Muslim army, but it was the military threat that made the Quran the law of Mecca in the end. So at this point in history, early 624, the Muslims, they had will and an increasingly large force. So with this multiplied military force, they marched to their first large-scale battle with great confidence. But would that force, that new force, would that times their great will, would that be enough against a thousand Meccans being outnumbered three to one? That's the Battle of Badr. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.